Hello, and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy, and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Bun in the oven? Eating for two? So many of our common phrases regarding pregnancy presume that it involves two distinct entities, the fetus and the maternal organism in which it resides. This sort of container model of the relationship between the maternal organism and the fetus pervades so much of our everyday discourse around pregnancy. Philosophical discussions of the ethics of maternal behaviour, for example, frequently claim that the location of a child, whether it be within the uterus or outside, is irrelevant to its ethical status. Socially, the tendency to see pregnant women as parents, with all the responsibilities that it carries with it, even before they give birth, is common. How justified is this view, though? Does it have the sort of biological or scientific basis we might assume it to have? Recent work by philosophers of science such as Elsa Lyne-Kingma and Fiona Woolard suggests perhaps that it doesn't. Perhaps they say an alternative parthood model in which the fetus is considered part of the maternal organism, just like the maternal organism's organs or limbs, is more accurate as an account of the metaphysics of pregnancy than the commonly assumed container model. Such a view, they argue, is not only plausible, but such plausibility has far-reaching implications. Today in the P-Value, we're talking about the metaphysics of pregnancy. Metaphysics, the philosophical study of what exists, is littered with disagreements about the ontological status of objects. Is, for example, a statue the same or different to the clay from which it's made? What about a pile of broken shards when we smash it? Are they also the same thing or different? Is the well-worn ship of Theseus the same ship it was when we first built it, even if all the boards have been gradually replaced over time? Or is it now a different ship? Strikingly, it is only recently that these debates have included discussion of the metaphysical relationship between mothers and their gestating offspring. The focus instead has typically been on the ethical responsibilities of mothers to their offspring, with an assumption that their relationship is not one of a part and whole. It may be that this is because the answer to the question of where the maternal organism ends and the fetus starts has been considered obvious. The maternal organism and the fetus are different entities. The fetus just happens to exist inside the maternal organism for a time. It's hard to say. But over the past decade, a thread of work in philosophy of science, bioethics and metaphysics has begun picking apart these issues to try and give a well-reasoned answer to the question, were you ever a part of your mother? Or were you always something else? One place we might naturally try to look to determine whether the parthood or container model of motherhood are most appropriate is the philosophy of biology. It's that discipline where there's been a long tradition of thinking about the nature of biological individuality. What is, it is asked, the difference between growth and reproduction? When does one organism become two? And when are we merely witnessing growth, excretion or some other bodily function? 
Why is it the birth of a baby the origination of a new individual, but losing a tooth is not? Within that literature, numerous criteria have been put forward to try and resolve the question of how to delineate between organisms and their offspring, ranging from genetic heterogeneity to the presence of a single cell stage or bottleneck to physical disconnection and functional integration. Given that humans are, after all, just a very familiar variety of placental mammal, and surely whatever account we offer of the relationship between maternal organisms and their offspring for our species should apply to others, if it's to be objective and scientific, it seems reasonable to look to philosophy of biology for some sort of criteria to resolve our initial question of whether you were ever part of your mother. One challenge for this move is that there's no agreement about the metaphysics of biological individuality. We can't simply read off the biological and philosophical literature a clear-cut and agreed-upon criteria for determining the boundaries between maternal organisms and their offspring. Now, while this much is true, at very least the literature does, to my mind, still serve to undermine the dominance of the container view simply because, although it gives us some ways of trying to cash out why we might think of the fetus as being separate whilst contained by the mother, it also offers us reasons to defend the parthood model. Considering some of the criteria for biological individuality helps illustrate this point. One pretty intuitive means of trying to distinguish between biological individuals is simply to look at their self-containedness or physical separation. When a farmer looks in their field of sheep, they count them by counting bodies. Similarly, the ecologist doing a field survey of black cockatoos sits and counts bodies. Each physically separate entity is considered another biological individual. Whilst intuitive, this view actually goes against the container view because fetuses are spatially continuous with the maternal organisms. They're connected by the placenta and umbilical cord right into the maternal blood system. In the biological individuality literature, spatial discontinuity is also often set aside because it produces some counterintuitive results when it comes to individuating organisms in various biological cases. Consider, for example, the quaking aspen, a medium-sized deciduous tree species which is found in North America and grows up to 30 metres in height. One way quaking aspen reproduce is by genetic clones sprouting from their roots. This results in large groves of genetic clones which remain connected to the root system and thus, at least on the physical separation criteria, are just one biological individual. Pando, or trembling giant, is the largest of such clonal groves and exists over 100 acres in southern Utah and weighs more than 14 million pounds. It would be, if we counted as a single individual, the world's largest living organism. Now, quaking aspen are not unusual, except perhaps in their size. Many plants reproduce in this way. New strawberries, for example, sprout from runners or stolon off the main plant, which may or may not eventually become physically detached. On the physical separatedness criteria, a group of strawberry plants are all one biological individual, for as long as they have some physical connection even if that connection is so tenuous that they would all persist quite happily if I broke it. 
This strawberry example might make us think we can save the physical connectedness criteria by adding a further condition for individuality. In particular, we could add to physical discontinuity that something is part of a whole if they're both physically connected to it and are not capable of independence if they were to be separated. In short, we might point to the potential autonomy or independence of the parts of a biological system as delineating them as separate individuals. On such a criteria, unlike the claw of a lobster, which once thrown can't persist by itself, or a tooth, which is lost and then is impotent once it's outside the body, the individual trees of the quaking aspirin, the strawberry plant, and the mature fetus can persist and reproduce themselves and are thus considered separate biological individuals, even if they're not entirely spatially disconnected. Now, whilst this is appealing, it again isn't without criticism. One, for example, might push against the idea that the autonomy criteria actually supports a container model for the human fetus and their maternal organisms, because no baby can survive on their own. Indeed, whilst physically disconnected, Newborn babies are anything but independent or autonomous from their parents, or at least independent or autonomous from the intervention of some adults. In this sense, we might ask how different they are to the claw of a lobster, which will wither and die once separated from the organism. This criteria again seems to push us towards viewing fetuses as part of their maternal organism, rather than being contained by it. try and save the container view by looking to a different condition. Perhaps something has to be both physically continuous and genetically homogenous to be a single biological individual. Whilst this wouldn't help us in the case of the strawberry or aspen plants, they would remain one plant each, it does give us some traction to push against the maternal organism and fetus being one biological individual. The fetus and its maternal organism are not genetically homogenous and thus, despite being physically continuous, are not, at least on this criteria, the same biological individual. Unfortunately, again, however, while this criteria offers some reason for the container model of motherhood, it comes with other consequences, which we might think are so counterintuitive as to think it can't be right. Think, for example, of the famous case of Karen Keegan. Karen Keegan was an everyday woman, or at least she thought she was, until she underwent genetic testing along with her family in the hopes of seeing if a family member could donate a kidney to her. The results of the test were a huge shock, however, because whilst Keegan had photos of herself with her children as newborns and could remember giving birth to them and so on, the DNA test suggested she could not be their genetic parent. In short, they didn't carry her DNA. Had she been their father the assumption would have been that there'd been adultery at play. But in the case of Keegan, doctors were flummoxed. How could it be that this woman that remembered giving birth to her children and indeed have photos of them at birth could not be their biological parent? Moreover, this couldn't be a case of the kids being switched at birth either, as they did have Keegan's partner's DNA. He was their father. The apparent paradox was resolved when DNA testing was carried out on other parts of Karen than just her blood. She had different DNA in her blood cells compared to the other tissue in her body. In particular, her oocytes, her eggs and ovaries, were different genetically to her blood. 
and this explained why her sons didn't share the DNA in her blood. Why this was the case is that unbeknown to Keegan, she was actually one of a pair of fraternal twins. Early in gestation, Keegan's twin had died, and the cells had been absorbed into the embryo that eventually developed into her. This left her with both the cells and DNA from the original embryo and those of the absorbed twin. She is what is known as a chimera. Now, Keegan's case may seem outlandish, but she's not the only reported case. And furthermore, because we don't routinely genetically test people and their families, there's likely to be lots more such chimeras around. We just don't know. Returning to the metaphysics of pregnancy, chimera cases like this have our criteria for physical connectedness and genetic homogeneity on shaky ground. Either we have to declare Keegan more than one biological organism, which is a highly counterintuitive result, or the criteria need revision. You might be tempted to bite the bullet and say Keegan is two individuals, but such a bullet is bigger than you might think. There are other cases of human chimera that also push on the view. Following a bone marrow transplant, for example, some or even all of the blood cells of the recipient carry the DNA of the donor. On the genetic criteria, we have ended up with two biological individuals, where we had one before. But it would be odd, I argue, to think of the the marrow transplant as being a moment of reproduction. The recipient does not seem to have been cleaved in two in virtue of having had the transplant, but this is what's suggested by the genetic identity criteria. Once again, we appear to be in strife, and the attempt to find some sort of principled criteria for the container view has failed. Thus far, we've looked at some reasons why the container model doesn't seem to quite work. But that is no positive reason to go for the parthood model instead. A positive reason for the parthood model put forward by Elsaline Kingma is the metabolic unity and functional integration of the maternal organism with the fetus. An organism's parts normally work together as one system, says Kingma. They work towards a common goal, the survival and reproduction of the organism. In this, the organs of a complex multicellular organism, like a human, are, whilst differentiated and diverse, parts of a common whole, which has evolved for survival and reproduction. Therefore, says Kingma, the marker of being an organism is to be functionally and metabolically integrated and to be interdependent on the whole. For Kingma, the interdependence being pointed to here is threefold. First, the fetus depends on the maternal organism for many of its metabolic activities, including waste disposal and temperature regulation. Secondly, the fetus is actively integrated into the maternal organism's metabolic system. When an organism becomes pregnant, changes are made to cardiac output, volume of the blood, etc., and adjusted over the entire course of gestation. Last but not least, the fetus and the maternal organism work together to achieve a common goal of survival and reproduction. In this sense, Kingma argues, the fetus is best understood as part of the maternal organism, not simply contained by it. Now, there are some objections to this view. There are, for example, conflicts between the interests of the fetus and those of the maternal organism. The fetus, for example, typically remains within the maternal organism longer than is required for mere viability outside the womb. 
This allows it to grow as big as it can before facing the world outside. This arguably continues longer than is in the interest of the maternal organism, the risk of complications increasing as the baby grows. Kingma responds to this concern by arguing that whilst these conflicts exist, they're rarely of a serious nature, because the helplessness of human infants means that their survival interests strongly align with that of the maternal organism, even if at times there's not a complete overlap. Another reason Kingma puts forward for parthood also draws on biology. Specifically, she points to an immunological account of individuality often associated with the French philosopher of biology Thomas Prideaux. Prideaux argues that we can use immunological tolerance to delineate organisms. Keegan is one organism because there's immunological tolerance. In other words, there's a recognition that even the formerly twin par- of even the formerly twin parts of herself as self by her immune system. Similarly, says Kingma, the maternal organism does not reject the fetus. It's not attacked and treated as self by the organism, at least in most circumstances. Now, one might argue that this is only achieved by both a dampening of the immune system during pregnancy and some sort of shielding of the fetus from the maternal immune system, rather than true parthood. Kingma responds to this worry by pointing out that not all those elements we typically take to be part of an organism, such as the brain, are fully integrated into the immune system either, but we don't think it's a problem there. For example, the blood-brain barrier, she says, protects the brain from inflammation by stopping many immune cells and agents from getting to brain tissue. This doesn't stop us from thinking of the brain as being part of the organism. And so, says Kingma, we shouldn't reject the fetus as being part of the maternal organism on such grounds either. What do you think? Physical discontinuity, genetic homogeneity, integration, autonomy, immunological identity – These all offer different criteria for carving up the world into biological individuals and see us drawing different boundaries when it comes to the maternal organism and the fetus. There are other options available to us too in the literature, but I'll stop there. Suffice to say that none is entirely satisfactory in that none seems to hit the sweet spot between capturing our intuitions and scientific interests in talking about biological individuality without having unintuitive or unappealing consequences. Given the lack of a single entirely satisfactory definition of biological individuality, we might well throw up our hands and say there's no fact of the matter to be had here. There's no facts about biological individuality, at least insofar as we thought biology might help us with the metaphysics of pregnancy. It cannot. What do you think? Are you a pessimist or an optimist? I've put some links in the episode notes to references if you want to follow up more. That's all for this episode. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The P-Value. The P-Value podcast is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University.